Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of QLS Classic. I'm Questlove. This episode, uh, we consider to be our finest hour. We interview the music god himself, Jimmy Jam. Uh, this is without no doubt one of our best moments, my personal favorite. Uh, in part one of this three-part series, we discuss his life in Minnesota, up in Minneapolis, coming up as a DJ, his friendship with Terry Lewis, his music partner, and uh, getting mentored by the one and only Clarence Avon, not to mention uh, Prince, starting a little unknown band called The Time. We hope you enjoy. Here we go. Suprema, Suprema Roll Call, Suprema. So I went to the mirror yeah. with grace and finesse. Yeah. The mirror looked back at me. Yeah. I swear to God said, Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Much love double dipping. Yeah. Not trying to be facetious. Yeah. That mirror really said. Yeah. Maris. We oh, oh, oh. Suprema. <laughs> Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. My name is Fonte. Yeah. In the hills of Agora. Yeah. With my man Jimmy Jam. Yeah. Now where's my fedora? Roll call. <laughs> Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. My name is Sugar. Yeah. The engineer. Yeah. If you need me. Yeah. I'm over here. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. I'm unpaid bill. Yeah. Chilling with my family. Yeah. Mr. Jimmy Jam. Yeah. Handed me my first Grammy. Roll call. That's Suprema, right. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Boss Bill's my name. Yeah. And I still say. Yeah. Best record of the 80s. Yeah. Alex is here say. Roll call. Suprema, 
Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. It's Laia. Yeah. Never out of touch. Yeah. Jimmy Jam is here. Yeah. I miss you much. Roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. I don't know. Yeah. What I'm supposed to say. Yeah. I'll be Fat Albert. Yeah. And so. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not want to waste a second. Welcome to Jimmy Jam. Yes. Okay, let's go. Jimmy Jam, where were you born? <laughs> no, I'm not wasting a second. No, how you doing? Uh, I'm good. I'm good, man. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, we're we're very overwhelmed for this. <laughs> we got pineapple. Goals, man. This is goals. Yeah. In your goals. house. I, yeah, like, my life is whatever. Y'all should have seen <laughs> when he walked in the door. I thought she was going to fall out. My Yeah, it was, like, my life is Baltic Avenue, Mediterranean. <laughs> like, this is boardwalk and park, park place. place. Yeah. yeah, Monopoly references, it is. It is. No it's, sports references. It's great. <laughs> uh, hello there, Mr. James Harris the Third. <laughs> How are up, you? man? I'm wonderful, man. It's great to be here with you today, finally. And your crew, your whole crew, man. Yeah. It's all wonderful. Yeah, thank, thank you. you for thank having you. Us. We've been thank looking you. forward to this one for a minute. Yeah, yeah. this is serious life, life goals here. Um, yeah, I, I, let's just... Go, let's we're go. starting from let's the just beginning. Go. <laughs> <laughs> just go. Where were you born, sir? <laughs> Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what part of what part of Minneapolis? Uh, I grew up South Minneapolis, so I'll just, you know I can say like Forty First and Portland Avenue, which doesn't mean a lot to anybody. But you know, if you think of downtown as like you know First Street, Second Street, you know First Avenue, so on and so forth, I lived forty one blocks south of downtown. I feel like when any black person is from the south side of town, south side or east side. That it's means no, something's, yeah, it's, something's, yeah, it's something's no, going it's no down. Joke. Like, what part of, what was the town, part of town to not go to in Minneapolis? Uh, well, okay, if you were black, the northeast was where to not go to. It was called, the, actually, the northeast is what we called it. Um, so That's where the stayed, white people lived? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The every, every town has the northeast <laughs> is always well, where white people the, live. The white, the white people didn't, didn't necessarily want us to be there, you know. Because okay. white people live every, I mean, let's face it, back uh, growing up, I think the state population was something like 3% black, and maybe it was 8% black in Minneapolis or something like that. So pretty much white people were everywhere. But certainly, uh, you know, everybody was very tolerant, I guess I would say, and it was a very progressive town. Mm-hmm. But um, as you can tell from the music that came out of there, I think that's had a lot to do with it. But no, I mean, really, the north side probably is where the folks were, you know. Um, I was one of the only south side guys. I mean, in Prince, obviously, because um, we went to school together and stuff. But on the north side of town, you had, you know, Morris Day, Jelly Bean, Terry Lewis, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you had the community center called The Way, which everybody used to rehearse at and that kind of thing. So it was a lot more happening on the north side of town, I would say, than on the south side. So in your formative years, how many of your contemporaries and peers that you were professional with would you see on a regular basis? Everybody, man. It was a it was a small community. It was it was um, it was a lot like um, I always say that Purple Rain 
the movie was a kind of a it was fiction but it was it, it told a lot of truth and that was there was like a couple clubs you could play at and there was more bands than the clubs could hold so it made for a very competitive situation where if your band wasn't firing you just wouldn't be playing in the club and so that's the way we grew up so there was like the elks lounge there was a club called the nakarima nakarima was actually american spelled backwards <laughs> and uh <laughs> you know the cozy bar was another place there was a place called the flame and, you know, so between, you know, b back in that day, you had, you know, my band, I had a band called Mind and Matter. Terry had Flight Time. We were together and then we were apart. We were, you know, we were going back and forth a lot. And then um, Prince had Grand Central. Um, Morris had a band called the Enterprise Band of Pleasure at one point in time, you know, so on and so forth. So what happened was there was a, all these bands, but there's only a couple of places to play. But all of those guys and, and particularly people like and that and really the best Probably the baddest dude up there was uh, Sonny Thompson. Sonny Thompson. Uh, yeah. Everyone speaks of Sonny Thompson like he's God. Yeah. Like, what is it about? What is the legend of Sonny Thompson? Well, Sonny Thompson, I remember back when uh, I first met Terry. And I remember we put our little band together and stuff. And then they used to do these big outdoor festivals at uh, this place called the Phyllis Wheatley, which is a big community center. And uh, they used to do these outdoor concerts. And I remember seeing, they had a band, actually the original band that was called The Family, Sonny Thompson was in that band. Mm -hmm. But I'd never seen a brother play the guitar like that. I mean, he just was like, um, he, he, he was like legendary. He, he was like the dude. And on top of it, he had the attitude, like if you didn't like him or you didn't like the way he was playing, he was going to come down and kick your ass, right? So he'd, he'd play the gig and stuff, and then afterwards, if he'd like look at it, you and, and you'd say to him, Oh man, you killed it, Sonny man. That was that was that was amazing. Because <laughs> you better say that. <laughs> but the good news was he always was. He was he was amazing, and he was a dude that everybody just kind of stopped and stared and went, "Damn, what was his style of playing?" He was a great rhythm player. He played with a lot of aggression. You know, the thing I always said about about Prince and the way he played is I've never seen anybody attack instruments the way Prince did. Like he literally attacked the instruments. Um, louder or just tone well you know he would i mean i always say like for instance uh terry you know terry's a great bass player there's no doubt about it but you know how we always use the analogy like in basketball people that make you better mm -hmm. prince was that person right so terry would be playing a bass part and prince would take the bass from terry and go no play it like this and then he'd play it and then he'd hand Terry the bass back, and Terry would look at the bass like he'd never seen it before, you know. <laughs> and it's like, damn, you know. So that, but that was the way Sonny was, and I, I think Prince got a lot of that from Sonny, like the attack of the instruments. And it's the same with the keyboards. We used to break keyboards all the time, because it wasn't like you would just hit the keyboard politely. It was like we were doing all kind of swoops and wow, wow, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Like we we would break keyboards. I mean that kind of stuff. I mean that was the way he wanted you to play, and um, so I mean that that kind of attitude to me was the thing that you know set him apart, along with a whole lot of other things. But it really set Prince apart for sure. What were the, what were the what was a goal club to play in Minneapolis at the time? Like was First Avenue a dream? That was unattainable? First, no, actually, here's the interesting thing. Yeah, now First Avenue was actually the first place that actually allowed, like, black bands to play. So there was a quiet segregation or uh, oh, it was, just not in your face? 
Oh, it was, um, I, gu I guess you could say it was quiet. I mean, if you were a band and you were trying to play somewhere, um, you knew there were clubs that were just unattainable. You just weren't going to play that club. And I thank God to this day that that happened because what it did, as history has always shown with black folks, is from adversity comes all good things, you know? Mm -hmm. You look at what you don't have, and then you figure out that you can't go the easy route that everybody else is going, and then you figure out a way to go get it done. So what we used to do back in the day, we knew we couldn't play. I can't remember even the names of the clubs, but there was all these very fancy white clubs, and they all had white bands, but they were all playing R&B music, which was ironic. Mm -hmm. We knew we couldn't play those clubs. So what we would do is, for instance, there was a hotel downtown uh, called the Dykeman Hotel. Uh, it was a hotel that was probably about a year away from, uh, you know, being torn down. I mean, it was just nobody stayed there. The rooms were ratty, the whole thing. But what they had was a big ballroom. So what we would do is we would take, um, you know, we'd go to the, the owner of the hotel and we'd say, hey, can we rent the ballroom out? Uh, we'll give you the, the liquor, whatever the liquor sales are, you keep. And we'll take the door. We'll charge, you know, three bucks at the door or whatever. And so... What it did is it forced us to become entrepreneurs because it wasn't like we just had the talent. We could go play. It was like, okay, we got the talent. Now we got to figure out how we're going to go play. So we would do that. Now, we, now back in the day, there's no Twitter, no social media. So it was go to Instaprints. That was the place. You go and you print up a bunch of flyers and then you put them on people's cars. Mm -hmm. And you'd say, you know, ladies get in free, <laughs> two for one drinks. You'd say whatever the heck you needed to say to get, to, them, to get them down. Right. And all of a sudden, you get on Saturday night, and all of a sudden, you'd get 1,500 people in this ballroom. Meanwhile, the white clubs are sitting empty. Mm. So now they're going, well, wait, where's everybody at tonight? And they're like, well, they're all going to see the band you wouldn't let play at your club. And so what happened after that was there began to be a little bit of a, a thing where people begin to recognize that maybe there's a talent or maybe we should let these folks in, you know, because these guys are talented and they're obviously drawing, right? But the first person to really act upon it was Steve McClellan at First Avenue, who okay. said, we'll book you guys in what was called 7th Street Entry, which is like the mm -hmm. little club, the little, right? Yeah. So if you were cool there, if you could get it going there, then we'll move you to the main room. But he was the one that really gave us the shot. And he gave, you know, back then, it wasn't just, by the way, it wasn't just black bands, but it was like new wave bands. And you think about like the replacements in the suburbs and all of those bands. Those, those bands all started, those white bands all started in that 7th Street entry. Were you even mixing with those guys at all? Like, would you see replacements? And mm -mm. We didn't mix at all. Not, I mean, just because just we didn't. It wasn't that we didn't like them. We were aware of them. Mm -hmm. And I think they were aware of us. But we no, we never mixed together at all. It was just kind of the same dudes from the neighborhood that we grew up with it was all of those same guys all together so kind of jumping ahead a little bit uh did you have goals to make it out of minnesota or or was it just like okay we'll just be a local band here and maybe well no i mean or i'll get a job like where are your parents yeah. supportive of this or well for, okay so oh two two really good questions so my parents, first of all, um, my dad played in a band and uh, was always a professional musician, used to take me to uh, rehearsals and stuff back when I was, you know, six, seven years old. 
And uh, I, you know, at that point, I had the music bug totally. So I got to see it. I used to, used to get to go to the studio and the whole thing. Um, but he was always, he never made it really where he wanted to. He was always kind of that guy on the cusp of making it. You know, he'd get on a few, back in the day, there were kind of regional records that were hits. And my dad would play on those records. And then they'd ask him to go tour. But because at that point of his life, he had me and he had gotten married. Mm -hmm. um, my mom always used to kind of frown upon, you know, like, well, no, you can't. You got responsibilities. You got family and you got, you know, you can't just run off and go on tour and that kind of stuff. And that really affected what happened with me. Because when I got to the point where I really wanted to do music, my mom was 100% behind me. Because she realized that my dad never had a chance to do what he the way he wanted to do it so she really kind of stepped out of my way and ve was very supportive of me so um that was huge for me by the way and they because they separated and so or they got divorced and so i basically stayed with my mom so she said you know whatever as long as i see you doing music you can do whatever the heck you want to do but you know as long as you're serious about it and that kind of thing so that was that was important what was the industry in Minnesota, like if cars were Detroit and black families were there, middle class and buying instruments and stuff, and the same for uh, factories in Indiana and the Midwest. Ohio stuff, yeah. What was the industry in Minnesota that kept? Was that an industry town at all, or? Well, the things I remember growing up were first of all grain and flour. I remember gold metal flour was a big company back in the day. Pillsbury was up there, big company. Uh, General Mills. General Mills, right? Yeah. Wow. Um, I forgot. I, I would visit General Mills. I factory. just now realized he said that the Ghetto Boys might thought he had cane, but it was gold metal flour. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> now I get it. Like, it was flour. I right. Thank you for solving that mystery. <laughs> 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 it's gold. I, I, know, I know what. I thought it was gold made of flour. gold made of flour. Right, right, right. right. This is like that? the most popular no, flour. I've never heard of that before <laughs> in my life because yeah. his accent, you know. I, I too thought it was thank you. I Jimmy. thought it was gold made of flour. <laughs> Solving gold. the mystery of Willie D. <laughs> wow, I, didn't, I didn't know there was a mystery. <laughs> All we had in the house was gold metal flour. What? Right. No, we had it, but I just didn't. You didn't put it together. Yeah. that that's what he was saying. I'm so, with you, uh, yeah. Fonte. <laughs> but all of those were up there, and, and obviously 3M was up there too. Honeywell. Um, there were some some pretty big companies up there for sure. Um, but just to just, and just to wrap the, the the other thing we were saying, the whole idea, yes, was to get out of town. Um, that was our focus because we knew we couldn't sit around and depend on playing in the clubs that weren't going to let us play. And we knew that we couldn't make it playing in a club circuit where there's two or three clubs and there's eight bands or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like that was not going to happen. So we set our sights always on making it nationally. That was our whole thing. When Prince made it out, that showed us that it can happen. And it also, because he was so unique in what he did, that then brought everybody started looking at Minneapolis like, okay, what else is up there? Because that, that happens with all towns. Happened with Seattle. Happens, you know, that's just mm -hmm. the thing that happens. It's like something great comes out, and it's like, oh, what's what up else there? Is there right? What else is there? So we were definitely the beneficiaries of that. And there's a lot of great, I will say, a lot of talented white musicians playing R&B music that never made it out of Minneapolis. Some of them made it out. Because Jesse took a couple folks with him and, and, and when he did his band, the mm -hmm. Jesse Johnson Review. Um, the Petersons? But the Petersons. Um, How many Petersons were there? 
a lot. Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> say that was the that was the musical family up there. I mean, just so much talent, you know. Um, but there were but there were other ones too. Um, and I, I'm just kind of I'm blanking on names and stuff. But there was a lot of talent. But because they didn't, they were very comfortable. So they had no reason to try to think outside of getting out of Minneapolis or anything like that, like we were. So a lot of great talent up there that people didn't know about until, like I say, until that time when, you know, Jesse picked up a few people. And um, I'm trying to think Margaret Cox, who's actually Tamara. Margie. But yeah. But Margaret Cox was insanely talented, you know, so um, as a singer. So, yeah, people like that. So uh, when can I assume that Funky Town was the first at least indication that an escape could be made or something could happen? Was that just like a fluke? One off in your eyes. Well, for us, um, you know, Prince was the example that you could make it. Because Prince was like three years before Funky Town. Hey, I forgot. Yeah. In so, my mind, I'm thinking Funky Town's like yeah, 70. But no, but, 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 but Funky Town was 80s, and that was, you know, at the height of the disco craze. And when it was, and actually when disco was being played on the radio, not only in the clubs, but actually the format. Because I remember we had a, a radio station up there that went from a rock format to a disco format, which was very controversial. <laughs> but um, yeah. but disco was hot at that point in time. But we we thought, um, <laughs> what did you grow up listening on? Like, what were you listening to? Growing for me, yeah. Well, there was nothing but pop radio up there. Um, I I mean, I grew up as a kid. My earliest memories were always, um, you know, I always loved the harmony groups. I loved uh, Seals and Crofts. America, America, wow, okay. yeah, you know that kind of stuff. Bread, mm-hmm. um, that was. I mean, to this day, that's the way I stack my harmonies because of the way they sang those songs back then. A little bit later in life, I liked um, like around the time I met Terry, I was really into Chicago. That was that was my favorite yeah. band ever, you know. And me and Terry both loved them. And then Terry then turned me on to when I met him. He turned me on to Earth, Wind, and Fire, Tower of Power, New Birth. Um, I met Terry in 72. Okay. Yeah. So we're, just, we're talking last days in time, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Music in My Mind, uh, Stevie Wonder. You know, these were the albums. And Terry turned me on to those so records. So black radio, you didn't There's have no a black, black radio. radio experience at the age of 10, 11, I didn't, 12. There wasn't a black radio experience for me. Um, when I got into high school, I was really into, um, or junior high, and, and into high school, I was really into Gamble and Huff and everything coming out of Philadelphia. Blue Magic was my favorite all-time group. I know everybody was into stylistics, but Blue Magic was my group. But how could you hear it or see it? Was Soul just, Train a thing? Or? Oh, yeah, Soul Train definitely was on, and you definitely would hear it on Soul Train. But I, I remember uh, I had a friend of mine whose dad was um, an executive at Musicland, which was one of the big retail stores back in the day. So he used to get every single record that came out. And my thing was I was always a big liner note reader and a big label reader. So my thing was... <laughs> Wait, we all yes. collectively for Infante and Bill. <laughs> yes. So my whole thing was, I remember there were records that would come out, and, and I would, um, particularly during the Motown era, because I really, I really loved the Motown records, all of that stuff, the Holland Dozier Holland. Like I, I, remember, I, did, I remember looking at a Supremes album at a, like a family reunion or something back in 62 or something or 60. So I was like three or four years old. And I remember that Holland Dozier Holland 
It was it, the album was called the Supreme Sing Holland Dozier Holland. That gold record. And I the gold record, right? Uh-huh. I had no idea what that meant. What I, I kept going, what does this mean? What do you mean they singing Holland Dozier Holland? And somebody explained to me, no, they wrote the songs. The girls are the singers, but somebody wrote the songs. And something went off in my head at that point that always made me look who wrote it, who produced it. And so I remember like all the Motown records would be the first ones I'd always go to. And I remember like staring at the first time I heard I Want You Back, uh, Jackson 5. And, I, you know, Dinah Ross, and, Dinah Ross presents the Jackson 5. And I thought, oh, wow, that's cool. And I looked on the record. I'm like, well, I don't see Dinah Ross's name anywhere on here. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> There's some dudes called the, the somebody corporation. Called the corporation. <laughs> yeah. I got to find out who the corporation is. You know, so that was always my my thing. And um, and and I knew that because what I learned was there were certain there were groups I liked, but it was all about who produced them. Like it was it was like you know like Eddie Kendricks could come out with a song and I would be like, yeah, that's okay. And then he come out with a song. I go, oh, I love that song. Okay, who did that song? Okay, Leonard Caston and, mm-hmm. you know, Frank Wilson and okay. And then I'd hear another song that had nothing to do with Eddie Kendricks, but I'd go, oh, I like that track. Who did that? And it'd be the same dudes, right? right. And, and, and that's when I got, that's when I started going, okay, that's, okay. that's my thing. And, and so for me, that's what always excited me. And that's what, you know, ultimately made me want to become a songwriter and a producer. What kind of equipment were you dealing with when you first started? Like, did you have a piano in the house or Fender Rhodes? Or... <laughs> we had. And how um... did you get it around to gigs? <laughs> oh, well, okay. Well, I'll tell you, our very first gig was uh, the summer that I met Terry, which was 72. Uh, uh-huh. And I remember um, my dad, at the time, I thought of myself as a drummer. I'd had drums in the house since I was like five years old. Uh, they bought me a drum set, and I used to play. And I used to blast. I remember uh, one of my favorite records was um, uh, this Jackson 5 record called Looking Through the Window. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? Because I loved the way it had that... And I used to play the drum to that, and I loved that, the way the... And all that stuff, all the dynamics of it. So I used to play like to that kind of stuff. And so I thought of myself as a drummer. So what happened was Terry was going to put this band together to play at this kind of year-end, summer year-end thing. And... He said, um, but he heard me play piano. And so he said, man, I need you to play keyboards for me for this thing. And I said, I'm a drummer, Terry. And he said, no, no, I heard you play the keyboards. I said, no, no, but really I play the drums. And he said, well, I already got a drummer. And I said, no, I I play the keyboards. I mean, I play the drums. So Terry then brought over Jelly Bean Johnson, (laughs) who was his drummer. And Jelly Bean played. And I said, yeah, I can mess with some keyboards yeah that's, <laughs> that's cool <laughs> so that that ended my drumming career at that point and uh was deli being playing guitar back then he played uh, yeah he did play guitar back then okay but he was a drummer i mean he was i mean a great drummer so i mean you could tell it back then he he's super talented dude and he's probably the one person in terry that's probably been in terry's life longer than me i mean i think he, I, him and jelly bean go back i met terry when i was probably 13 or something and Jelly Bean probably precedes me by three or four years because they went to school together. Um, so I didn't meet Terry till the summertime, you know, thing. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was amazing. So what we did is we went out. I was playing drums with my dad, okay, and he had a gig where he would play the weekends at a couple clubs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that and, and I, real quick how that happened was um, he had a trio, right, and it was him, this guitar player named Coffee, and 
a drummer, right? But the, every they never could keep a drummer. So every week there'd be like a different drummer. So and I don't so, tap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. So eventually, um, one there was a gig and the drummer didn't show up, and my mom said, "Why don't you let Jimmy play a set?" He knows all your songs. We've been watching you play for all this time. Sounds so, familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I uh, so I did. I, I sat in. I did one set with him and stuff, and everybody liked it. Crowd liked it. Okay, great. So a couple of weeks later and stuff, same thing. And so Coffee, the guitar player, said, you know, hey, Jim, well, my dad's name was Jim also. He said, hey, Jim, you know, why don't you let your son go ahead and play? You know, he knows the show, show just let him play. He said, oh, I'm not sure about that, whatever, whatever. So anyway, I did. I went played the whole show. So after the end of that gig, Coffee said to my dad, why don't you just let your son play, man? We don't have to keep finding drummers, you know? So my dad said, okay, cool. We'll, we'll let you play. We'll, you, you are a drummer. And then my mom said, and, he, and my mom said, how much are you going to pay him? And he, and she became my agent real quick. So, and and then my dad said, "Well, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll throw him out, you know, a little something, something." And she said, "No, no, no, you're gonna pay him just like you pay any drummer else, that yeah. you pay, right?" <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that was the start of my, you know, gig, and that started my little, I don't know, college fund, or I don't know what happened to that money, but we started putting that money away. So that that was <laughs> yo. Where the I parents, do you ever see your college fund money from all them bank accounts? Ever. Yeah, ever. I had a $50 savings bond like my grandmother bought me when I was like five. Never seen it. I don't know where it's at. Yeah, now. I think my dad spent my money. Last time I saw it, it was on top of the TV that was on top of the big TV. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a long time ago. So how does how do you guys melt all your bands? Because I, I can assume that the time is basically a super group of... Minneapolis-based musicians and one Illinois musician. Yeah. So what starts the process of you guys leaving your respective bands to become the time? Okay. Well, that's... Uh, I'll try to not make it too complicated. So here's... There's a lot of moving parts. So for me, first of all, Terry at this point had put together what was the nucleus of flight time, which was uh, Jellybean Johnson on the drums, Terry on the bass. Um, interesting story how he had found uh, Monty Moyer because Terry had been trying to get me to join the band again. I was, I was off doing my own band for a while, and then I had actually quit doing that, and I had started DJing. In your I, band at that time, were you... Uh Drumming or were you playing keys? I was playing keys and I was writing all the songs. Okay. We did we did all original songs and it was all and I was doing my best, you know, uh, Tom Bell, gambling <laughs> of this is uh, a mind and impression, stuff. mind and matter. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's what I was trying to do with a little bit of electronics in it. You know, I had a little synthesizer and stuff in it, but it was definitely definitely trying to be that. That was that was my inspiration. Okay. And so. Um, so I had, you know, those guys to me weren't serious. They were older guys. I was just, a, I was 16 at the time. And those mm -hmm. guys weren't really serious about it. Like, they're 22, 23. And I didn't get, well, they had jobs and families and kids and stuff. I'm like 24 hours music. And, you know, I'm like, y'all are messing up, you know. And they get high and stuff. And I'd be like, y'all getting high. We need to be working on our music. And, you know, they were like, who's this punk kid, you know, <laughs> telling us, you know. So anyway... Eventually, I just said, forget it. So I started DJing. I started uh, working at a record pool, you know, getting records. I started working at a record store, 
because um, I the clubs I played at were influential enough that I could know when I heard a record, I could go to the record store guy, and he didn't trust me at first, but I could say to him, hey, there's this record. Matter of fact, MFSB had a record called Dance With Me Tonight. Okay. And I had this girl named Joyce whenever I played at the club, and this is a teen club, because I played at a bunch of different clubs as a DJ. Mm-hmm. I had, and, and my crowd just kind of followed me around, but the teen crowd was my, my best. We did about 1,500 kids on a Friday and a Saturday night. It was huge, a huge place. Yikes. Yeah, That's huge. pressure. Oh, it was great. It was it was awesome. It was awesome. It was, a, it was the most one of the most fun moments of my life. Actually, was doing that because just the whole idea of introducing people to music, which is amazing. And you know how that feels. I mean, well, you guys yeah, do that. No, teens hold you hostage today. So if you don't play what they know, <laughs> that's your ass. Well, you know what? Okay, so that that's my point. So I had this girl named Joyce, and Joyce, I don't know where she was from, but she'd always hand me some record every week, and she'd say play this, this is going to be whatever, whatever. And I'd, and I'd listen to it a little bit in the headphones and preview it, and it would always sound a little weird to me. And I'd be like, Joyce, are you sure? And she'd go, yeah, yeah. And she had a crew of about three or four other people, and she would get out and dance. She said, I know the dance floor is going to clear, but we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to dance, and we're going to be cool. I mean, okay. So anyway, she brought me a whole bunch of different records, but the one I remember, the, the one of the first ones was Dance With Me Tonight, MFSB, right? So... And I said to her, you know, Joyce, I got the album. I said, I've heard the song. It ain't really that. No. She said, no, but this is the 12-inch. It's different. It's a different mix. I said, okay, cool. I put the record on, and I go, because I talked, too. I mixed and I talked. I did both things. And I just said, here's a new one. Front sale and back sale. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, right? <laughs> and I said, okay, here's a, here's a brand new one, you know, exclusive, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. I put the record on. The intro of the record's about, I don't know, it's about 16 bars and stuff, and it sounds like, I, I don't know, it's, it, it doesn't sound like nothing's going to happen, right? And everybody's kind of staring at me for a minute, because uh-huh. they pretty much trust me. So they're staring at me for a minute, and then I see them start to inch off the dance floor, and I'm like going, oh, man. I'm bombing. And, right? And then all of a sudden, it kicks into this different groove. Goes into this groove. And I see every, and then I see Joyce in the middle of the floor with her crew of people start dancing, and all of a sudden now the dance floor starts coming back on the dance floor. By the end of the night, that record I had to play it again. Wow! They loved it that much, so I went to the record. There was a record store called Hot Licks, and I remember this guy named Chico. I think his name was Chico Fat Fingers, right? And he played, <laughs> he played, he played, he played, he played with a reggae band uh, called. Oh man, I'm, I'm gonna. I can't remember the name. It's like Shigoya or Shambai or some, it had some name like that. Anyway, he ran the store. So I walked into the store and I said, hey, man, this 12-inch dance with me tonight. Can you get some of these? And he said, yeah. He says, why? And I said, because this is my number one song at my club. I'm going to play it again ne- next weekend. And I said, and I'm going to tell everybody to come down that you're the only one that has the record. Downtown Minneapolis, you're the only one that has the record. Right. So, okay. So he says, well, how many should I get? And I said, mm, like a thousand. He said, what? (laughs) You're nuts. I said, okay, cool. So anyway, next weekend I played it, packed the dance floor. I said, Hot Licks, go down to Hot Licks. They're the only ones in town with the record. He said, uh, Monday, he said he was sold out. And he said, and I I said, well, how many did you order? He said, well, I ordered 500. I said, I told you to get 1,000, right? (laughs) And I remember I talked to, later on in life, I talked to some PR person that worked for CBS back in the day. And they said, Man, it was weird. This one record just jumped off for us. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, so wait. Yeah. 
we 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 always do this on Quest Love Supreme for old DJs. Can you can you front sell Dance with Me tonight right now? Keep front sell. Front sell, yeah, I guess. Here we yeah. go. All right. All right. Here's an exclusive. You're gonna hear it first for the first time. You trust me on this one now. Trust me. This is MFSB. Dance with me tonight. Here we go. Uh. <laughs> That was Dance With Me Tonight. Dance With Me Tonight. <laughs> that was an easy one. You had to hit the post. And, you know and you know what's yeah. funny is, is, is that ended up being, I kept charts from, you know, Dance Floor Reaction and all that stuff. And then I started printing the charts out. And then I would take them down to the record store. And I'd leave them, right? And that record was my number one record of all time during the probably year and a half that I was, I was at that club. And she brought me some other ones. Uh, Firecracker, Mass Production. I'm First Sita. time, and uh, and then she brought me Firecracker was easy. The follow up was Forever, and I don't remember Forever. Forever started off with just a uh, a hi hat, so it just started off with which was a guaranteed dance floor, you know, clearer. Oh which, really? Yeah, but she said. But wait till the beat kicks in. It's going to be real cool. So I said, okay, here's new mass production. And people were like, well, they knew that Firecracker was the jam. Uh-huh. So they stood with me for this one. And they stood. And when it kicked in, they, uh-huh. <laughs> Sounds like put the word on my evil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, watch when this kicks in, though. I never even knew they had a follow-up record. This was the follow-up. This was the follow-up. And masterpieces M A S S T E R. I have this at home. We're in storage. Wow, Jimmy yeah. Jam, Joy, you are Joy, Joyce should have got an A&R job, right? <laughs> Joyce was Joyce was incredible, man. man she you got my DJ game already. I'm, I'm going to play these two in my next sets. I got I got I'll give you one more from that from that day. What about are you familiar with Breakwater? Yeah. Yes. Do yeah. it to the fluid gets hot. I don't know that one. I didn't I play that. Do it to the fluid gets hot was another one. I played one Say You Love Me Girl and uh Release the Beast. Yep. But do it yeah. to the fluid gets hot. Do it to the fluid gets hot. That was another one that was really hot for me. And these records were only big at my club, right, and at this record store. <laughs> that, was, that, that was the weird thing about it. Oh, yeah, I, okay, I know this. You got that one? Yeah, I know okay. this. At the time, you just you DJ Jimmy Jam? What was yes. your DJ, Monica? It was Jimmy Jam. Okay. That came from DJ. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that yeah, came I, from DJ. Oh, so what happened, So okay, so that club was called the Disco Trek, right? Now, also downtown was a club that went through a series of different names, but when I worked there, it was called the Fox Trap, okay? Now, the Fox Trap had three levels. Downstairs, live music. Second floor was DJ, which was me. And then third floor was a DJ, but it was more chill, more, you know, laid back, right? More of a lounge type situation. So, um, when I started working, there was a DJ named Kyle Ray, and Kyle Ray was as you call it, the front-selling DJ. Like, he did no mixing at all. 
it was all just personality and playing records, right? So I took an example from him. He was actually tragically killed, which was like nuts. And he tragically died. And so I kind of had borrowed a little of his style as far as front loading the records. Mm -hmm. But I could also mix because I had, you know, kind of the musical thing. So I always did a combination of it. And then I had a little keyboard, which actually I have downstairs, oh, which yeah. was my first synthesizer. And I used to play along with the records and create my own little stuff. So I was doing that. And, that, and there was a, a um, at the, I was just going by Jimmy Harris, which was my name. And there was a, a bartender from Philly who called himself Delphonics, right? <laughs> right, okay. And I went over to get, you know, a drink from him or whatever, a Coke, because I, I don't think I was, I don't think that I was 18. I was probably still 17, 18. I don't, I don't even think, but I didn't drink anyway, so it didn't really matter. And he said, yo, he said, man, he said, uh, what kind of name you got, man? And I said, what do you mean? He said, what's your DJ name? And I said, I don't know. He said, man, you got to be, you got to be something, man. I'm telling everybody your name's Jimmy Jam. And I said, okay. He said, Jimmy Jams, pot and, pots and pans, shake my hand. He went into this whole rap, right? And I was like, oh, <laughs> That's Philly. okay, cool, right? So anyway, he started telling everybody my name was Jimmy Jam. And, and it just stuck. And even to the point when we did the first time record, and I said to Prince, when Prince was doing like the credits on the record, right? and I said, Prince, what name should I be under? And he said, you should be Jimmy Jam. And I said, okay, cool. <laughs> so that was it. So then it was historic because it was imprinted. So that point. Philly Brother gave you your, your Philly Brother moniker. gave me my name, Delphonics. Yes, sir, the bartender at the Foxtrap. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. 
I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, so I'm sorry because we're totally off track here. No, we are. We are. We're on track. Yeah. Okay. So, (laughs) okay. So I tell the story about playing in all the different clubs and stuff. So, at the Fox Trap, Terry was playing downstairs in the in the live music room. Right, I was playing upstairs, right in the DJ room. And Terry used to come up, and Terry is really good at bugging the shit out of people and twisting their arm, and he's really good at that. He's stubborn, right? Mm-hmm. So his whole thing was, man, you ain't a DJ, man. You're a musician, man. You need to join the band. We need a keyboard player and such and such and such. And I'm like, Terry, I just I'm not feeling it, man. I, you know, whatever. So. One day he comes up to the booth and he says, Jam, he said, we got a keyboard player. And I thought, oh, great. He's going to quit bugging me now. And he says, right. So I'm like, he's like, come down and you should come down and check him out. And I said, okay, cool. So I grabbed Knee Deep by Funkadelic, which was, I think, 17 minutes or whatever it was. (laughs) I put that on and I jumped out the booth. It was pretty early in the night. So it wasn't, you know, nobody would have cared if it it went, ran out. But I ran downstairs. I walk into the room. I hear they're playing um, What You Won't Do For Love, Bobby Caldwell, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're sing- and I'm hearing this, somebody singing. I'm like looking around. Who's singing? Somebody's singing their ass off. Who's singing? And I look behind this stack of keyboards and this little white guy. <laughs> right? And I'm like looking and I'm like, oh, wait, his mouth is moving, but it doesn't sound like a white boy singing. And who is that? You know? So I went back upstairs. I looked at Terry and I went, you know, gave him a thumbs up. I went back upstairs. So after the gig was over, I came back down. I said, hey, man, who was singing to Bobby Caldwell? He said, that's our keyboard player, Monty Moyer. And I said, oh, I said, nice to meet you, Monty. I said, cool, Terry. I said, well, good. You got your keyboard player now. We, You know, good luck, you know. He said, no, man. He said, we got to have two keyboard players, man. That's the, that's the vibe, two keyboard players. So fast forward a little while. I was going out with this older lady. Right. And uh, she was beautiful, too. Puerto Rican. Oh, my God. Anyway, so. <laughs> um, anyway, she broke my heart. I was, I think I was 18. She was 30, probably, right? Oh, wow. So, God damn. So she. Sorry. Her name was Carmen, and she worked at the. Of course it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> of course it was. She worked at the, at the cosmetic counter at one of the stores up there, man, and she just was amazing. So, anyway, she broke over me. So, I'm a little broken hearted i'm walking home right i'm walking from her apartment home which is you know maybe 10 blocks not that far right so i'm walking up lake street which was one of the main things and i walk by this club uh i didn't even know it was a club it was like a community center and i'm walking by and i hear you know music coming out of it and stuff and i was like oh something's going on in here right so i open the door i look in i walk in there's a band rehearsing whose band is it terry's band right i said terry what's up man he said oh this is our rehearsal space man we're you know this 
they open up this club. They're letting us rehearse here, and then they're going to actually open it up night times. And it was called the Yasm, Y-A-A-S-M, which was the Young African American Society of men or something like that. Or something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 I'm feeling real yep. slavish. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Turns out it's upstanding. Yeah. yeah. So, it, so, ah. so the yasm. So anyway, I was like, okay, cool. So anyway, they're in there rehearsing and stuff. I said, yeah, cool, cool. So Terry said, yeah, man, so come on, man. You ready to join the band? And I said, no, man. I said, I, you know, I'm, this girl just broke my heart, man. And, you know, and Terry's like, man, get your mind off it, man. You know, you just need to jump back into this. I said, no, nah, man, I, I don't have any keyboards, man. I, you know, I sold all my keyboards and stuff. I, I you know, my, we'll get your keyboards, man. What kind of keyboards you want, man? I said, no, nah, no, nah, I don't, Terry, I'm good, right? So this is before cell phones, right? Mm -hmm. I go home. Next day, my phone rings, Terry Lewis. Come on, Jam, what you going to do, man? Come on, man, we got, we, we got keyboards for you, man. Come on down, come on down, you know? And at that point, they had started getting some gigs and stuff. They were going to be opening for the Barcades and Switch at this oh, concert, wow. right? Whoa! So it was like, man, you got to join the band, man. We're going to be opening for Barcades and Switch. Now, at this point in time, the Alexander O'Neill was our lead singer. Okay. Okay. So this is when Alex was the lead singer. So anyway, we had a nice little band. We had basically the band. We didn't have a guitar player. We it was kind of rent. We would rent a guitar player, but we didn't really have anybody serious on guitar, right? Okay. So anyway, we go and do the gig. Gig was cool. Somebody from Switch stole some some of our shoes. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jody Sims, yeah. we're looking at you, bro. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so anyway, but it was cool. So at that point, I pretty much was in. That, so anyway, so the band was set, except we didn't have a guitar player. So we started gigging and started doing our thing. Our reputation was basically that we were the we were the best band in Minnesota. So we, you know. <clears throat> we, would other bands agree with you? Well, uh, yes, they would. Actually, okay. interestingly enough, because what happened was, um, so this is the Jesse Johnson piece. Okay. So Jesse had Jesse had moved to Minneapolis, or actually had come to Minneapolis because he heard Prince was looking for a guitar player. Okay. But he was mistaken because he was actually looking for a bass player. He was looking for somebody, um, and he ended up getting Brown Mark. Right. But um, he but Prince met him, and Prince you know liked Jesse, and he said. He told Jesse, he said, you should, you should stay in town and, and, you know, get in one of the bands up here and just, you know, stick around. So Jesse went to Morris's band, which was called Enterprise Band of Pleasure. Okay. So Morris, interestingly enough, was the drummer in that band, not the lead singer. And a girl named Sue Ann Carwell was the lead singer. 99 and a half Sue Ann Carwell. Yeah. Sue Ann Carwell was amazing. Okay. Amazing singer. Um... Prince did a lot of stuff with her back in the day, too. Yeah, I mean, she, she was an amazing singer. Interestingly enough, little side note, Morris did come up and sing one song every night. He got off the drums, and Sue Ann actually went back and played the drums. Wow. Oh, they traded. Yeah, they traded. Oh, okay. like Switch. And, and, <laughs> and the song was, ironically, Too Hot. Like Cool in the Gang? Cool in the Gang. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Okay. You know, so Mr. Cool sang Too Hot. So, <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> and he sang it really good. That was a funny thing. If, if you think about it, that's a really tough song to sing. There's a lot of different intervals and it's crazy. If you ever watch people try to sing that song, it's tough. It's the tough. bridge is tough. No, it's too, think about it. You got to hit all the notes. Yeah, it's a lot of, and then it goes to the chain. You know, it's a lot. Anyway, he used to hit it flawlessly every night, right? So 
anyway, everybody kept telling us about this guitar player. You know, they come to our gigs and they'd be like, man, you checked out Morris and them's guitar player? And we were like, no. I said, man, they got this guitar player, man. He wears pink suits. Does like 10 minute guitar solos, man. You got to check him out. And we were like, okay, cool. So we had a night off. We went over and checked him out. He was exactly as advertised, right? <laughs> so afterwards, we went up to, the, to him and we said, hey, man, you need to come join our band. You need to come watch us. You know, nothing against Morris, but you need to come to our band. So he said, okay, cool. So the next weekend, he came. That's his car Well, I mean, you know, because, I mean, there's no, I mean, it is all word of mouth. Them's I mean, fighting words, though. <laughs> Taking money out of my mouth. Well, there's no social, I mean, there's no social media. So, I mean, it's all just kind of word of mouth. Somebody hears something, they tell the next person, they tell the next person, so on and so forth. Right. So that's what it was. And so, anyway, yeah. So, you know, he came over, checked our band out, and we were good, right? So, he went back to Morris and he said, Yo, Morris, he said, um, you know, no offense, man, but, you know, I'm going to join Flight Time, man. They're, they're like really good. <laughs> <laughs> and when Morris said, actually kind of surprised, well, it surprised us when we he told us. He said, um, he said, and Morris said, yeah, that's cool, Jesse, because pretty soon we're all going to be one band anyway. Wow. <laughs> and we didn't know what that meant. We were like, I don't, what's he talking about? We're going to be one band. We, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, so as the story goes, Prince, when he was doing the Dirty Mind album, mm -hmm. right? Now, of course, the first couple of albums he did were more R&B records, I mean, right. with some rock stuff on it. But Dirty Mind was a whole different departure. Warner Brothers was scared of Dirty Mind because they didn't hear any, like, funky hits on there. Right. Uh, Uptown... Uh, sort of and uh, that but they need, they wanted another song they said we need another funky song on the record right so Morris actually wrote Party Up, Party up right. um, but Prince took the credit for it but he owed Morris a favor and he told Morris if you put a band together I'll get your record deal so Morris came over to our band and said Prince said if I put a band together he'll give a, get, a, get us a record deal so y'all just be the band, and now we'll go get a record deal. And that's how Morris ended up in the band. But that's not the end of the story. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to yeah. say. Uh, <clears throat> so, Because he didn't want to sing initially, right? Alex was well, still Alex, so Alex, yeah. so, so we had two dilemmas. One was, well, actually, it wasn't, the, the, we actually had one dilemma, because Alexander O'Neill was the lead singer of the group. Was he a good lead singer, singer at that time? Alexander? Mm -hmm. Oh, amazing. Okay. Never would sing the same lyrics twice. <laughs> <laughs> we had a song called, I remember we had a song called March Right that was an original song. And every gig he'd sing different lyrics. He just would just make up lyrics as he went along. The, the, the chorus would always be the same, but the actual lyrics he would sing were always different. Right. And he did that a lot because he never showed up to rehearsals and he never, you know, he, he didn't really care. But he, no, he could pull it off. He was, Alex was amazing. So... Anyway, our big dilemma was, well, if Morris is the drummer, what happens to Jellybean? Do we have two drummers? Um, Jellybean was good on guitar, but not at the point where we could make him into a guitar player. So he was kind of like going to be the odd man out, and it was almost like, wow, who's going to break the news to Bean? And you know, that's Oh, kind of really? Up. Oh, yeah. So we were at that point. Well, so Prince called a, a dinner at uh, Perkins Cake and Steakhouse, which is wow. sort of like uh, <laughs> the, 
the equivalent of Denny's, but better. Yeah, it's like Perkins Shoney's. is still there. Perkins that is still Perkins. around. Yeah, it's still there. No, it's still there. Oh, it's still there. I went to that Perkins. Yep. After my first night at Paisley Park. Yep. It's still there, right? <laughs> That's crazy. So anyway, we sit down. And we're all going to have dinner, basically, and Prince is going to kind of lay out the game plan of what we're going to do, right? So Alexander O'Neill's there. Now, the first thing to say about Alex is that Alex always speaks in the third person. <laughs> <laughs> like a football player. Yeah. Alexander Terry Armstrong going to yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Alex now, he, you know, he goes into his, before, now we've, or, we've ordered food, right? And, of course, Prince is buying, so Alex orders a big steak, and he orders all this food, right? So Alex goes, okay, Prince, before we get started, because he had a little lisp, right? So he would go, okay, Prince, before we get started and things like that, Dad, you know, I had a few things I just want to get off my chest. Here we go. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we're all, like, looking at Alex, like, what What are you doing, man? And he's like, so, you know, here's the thing. See, you know, Alexander O'Neill, you know, first of all, Alexander O'Neill need, you know, I need a new house. <laughs> I, I, oh, wow. I, I need a, I need a new car. You know, I need a I need a pool and things. You know, Alexander O'Neill. You know, yeah, I need a pool and things. You know, Alexander O'Neill need. You know, I just need some things. You know, I know this this whole record thing is real cute and, and all that stuff there, but this you know, Alexander O'Neill needs some things. You know, what I'm saying, Prince. You know, so this is all cute and everything. You know, but I'm just letting you know that you know before we get started. You know, this is, and and as he's talking. Everybody's kicking each other under the table and nudging everybody. Like, what the heck is this dude doing? We ain't even got the deals. Ain't so little. We ain't signed contract. We ain't nothing. It's right. like, you know. So as he's talking, and I see this, and if we ever do our movie that we want to do, <laughs> it's like a movie. Alex, the waiter comes, and as Alex is finishing his tirade, puts this big steak down in front of him. <laughs> And Alex goes right on cue. Prince, that's just the way I see it. So I'm going to go ahead and throw down and see a steak right here. Three <laughs> <laughs> one, I'll come back again, selector. Yeah, what do you So Prince and Morris look at each other and get up and leave the restaurant. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah, they're gone. So now we're like going... Who's going to pay for this steak? This is not <laughs> right. right. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we're like, okay, this is not good. So anyway, I don't even remember. We were like, dude, what are you what are you doing here, man? What are you doing, Alex? Well, man, I'm just, you know, I'm just, you know, trying try to point out a few things, you know. People think, you know, because I'm telling you, man, you know, here's the way it is with Alexander O'Neill. You know, if there's a bear in the woods and Alexander O'Neill, you better help the bear because you ain't got to help Alexander O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, we have a publishing company called Help the Bear. Help. Wow. <laughs> and that's why. Because that was Alex's that was Alex's line. So needless to say, we th just thought everything was done. And I can't remember whether so Terry got a phone call and I can't remember whether it was from Morris or from Prince. I think it might have been from Prince. And he just said because it was just it was a very short thing. It was it was basically lose the bear. Yeah. It was like <laughs> Alexander Neal is out. Um, Morris Day is the lead singer. Jelly Bean Johnson's the drummer. Meet tomorrow at 9 o'clock at such and such and such. At the Yasm. Oh, to wow. rehearse. <laughs> and that was it. And Alex was done. Bean was the drummer. Morris was, was the lead Alex singer. Was Alex told this? 
Somebody told him. Go we, on. we didn't. I don't know who told him, but yeah, he he got the word. But I need to know the story of the next time you saw Alex. So oh, well, was Alex cool with this? Oh, of course not. Well, yeah, because yeah, because you know, help the bear. Because Alex had no need. He don't need no help. Need no help. No, but I remember what our conversation with the conversation I remember having with Alex after that was just one where we said to him, "Hey, man." If we make it, meaning me and me and Terry had this conversation with him, we just said, man, when we make it, we're coming back and getting you. Yeah. And that was it. Aww. And See, Bill, it works out. Man, <laughs> I knew he was going to do it. <laughs> no, because we, we you know, it, it just, you know, it, we felt bad and, and we felt like, you know, we didn't know the way things were going to work out that we'd actually have an opportunity to do that and, and come back and grab him. But we did the way things worked out. But... But now yeah, we just kind of felt like that, and you know, and then at that point we were we were off and running, and Alex was just you know still gigging locally and and everything, you know. But yeah, he talked himself right out of that, and we did one song with Alex. Actually, recorded one song called That's "You." The time? It was called "You." Yeah, it was called "You Would Be Mine." Wow, it sounded <laughs> that very, gig would have been <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. It was it was ironic, but yeah. So once you guys started rehearsing, uh. Well, yeah, talk about that process. Like, how often would you guys rehearse? And Every single day. Every single day. Now, here's the thing. Now, the album was already done. I mean, Morris and Prince had already done the Time album. We didn't play on the Time album a lick on the first album. So you album. were given we were the given record the, or the cassette? We were given, yep, we were given the cassette. and Six songs, correct? Learn, learn these songs. Six wow. songs? Mm-hmm. You also did the, what's the To The Beat song? The... Oh, by by the no beat. no no no. Uh, oh oh, dance to the beat. Dance, oh, to, the dance beat. to the beat. Dance. Yeah, so yeah, there yeah. were extra songs too, correct? Or? Yeah, but we never recorded dance to the beat. I don't think. I think we just played it live. I don't think we ever recorded it. If it was, it was recorded, it was live recording so of it. So was it only expected of you guys to just do a half hour, no matter what? Or because well, I'm knew- thinking, like, if you're doing having a sh- show's material, usually people do cover songs, have a 45 minute show ready or an yeah. hour show ready. Well, when we went, okay, so when we went out initially, so when we rehearsed, and actually there's one piece of the rehearsal I got it, I got it, or two actually rehearsal stories I'll relate to you while we're on the rehearsals, because we're rehearsing at the Yasm. And the Yasm, as it turns out, was owned by this guy named uh, uh, Leonard Weaver, was his name, right? Old cat, old black cat. And he had this bar, and in the bar were these juice machines. One was lemonade and one was fruit punch. And he also had these lamps. It was like a lounge. And he had these lamps. And they were naked women, basically, with a lampshade on top of it, right? Mm-hmm. So when we started rehearsing, Leonard said he had two rules. He said, y'all stay out of my juice machine, and y'all don't touch my titty lamps. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Christmas story. <laughs> right, right. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's Italian. <laughs> So, <laughs> titty lamps. Lamp. So we said, "Okay, cool. We we got you, man. We we're not gonna mess. We're not, we got it." So we started rehearsing. We were rehearsing every day at this point. So I remember, um, you know, the, the whole thing. Now Jerome at this point was not in the group. Jerome was a roadie, mm-hmm. right? And I remember we had gone and done a couple of gigs, and Jerome had to like ride in the truck with the equipment with this gap tooth British guy, you know, with the British teeth. 
you know, hey, Jerome, help me, you know, unload the amps. And, you know, it was like all this. And Jerome was just like so pissed off, like, you know, whatever. But he's, you know, he's going along with it, right? So he's trying to figure out, man, how can I get a gig in this thing? You know, I, you know, something. And Terry's trying to figure it out, too, because that's his, you know, Jerome's Terry's brothers, right? So we're trying to figure this out. So anyway, we're rehearsing. And in the stick, Morris sings, somebody bring me a mirror, right? So on the walls of the Yasm are these big mirrors, right? But not like little mirrors, but I'm talking about big, full huge, body, full body <laughs> mirrors, right? Oh, Lord. So Prince is at the rehearsal, and he's watching us rehearse. And Morris says, somebody bring me a mirror. And out of the blue, Jerome goes and grabs a mirror off the wall, puts it in front of Morris, Morris turns around, looks at it, kind of like startled, like, oh, and pulls out his comb and starts combing his hair. <laughs> Prince falls on the floor. <laughs> Light bulbs. Right. He's like, ah, we got to do that. We got to do, do that. that. Yeah. We got to do that. And Jerome was no longer a roadie. Wow. So that's how, that's how he went from being the roadie to being the ballet. It was simple as that. And that happened. And every night, we'd go into the bar and drink the juice out of the juice machine, but then we'd pour water into it so it would look like nothing happened. Because every time, so, so Leonard would walk in every day and he'd come in and he'd look and make sure everything was cool. And then one day we were playing around and we broke one of the titty lamps. Oh, shit. Mm. And so we like turned it around and tried to kind of glue it and try to whatever. And I swear to God, he walked in and he looked and he said, Who's been in my juice machine? Because it's because because it, it's all like light colored now, right? <laughs> <laughs> Brother's trying to be slick, but it ain't working, right? So it's all like that. And then he looks and he's like looking at all of us. He said, "Who's in my juice machine?" And we're like going, "Oh, we don't know." Uh, but it was Jesse was who it was. So anyway, we <laughs> we were like, "No, I, we don't know. We don't really know." So he was like looking around. My titty lamp. <laughs> Who broke my titty lamp? And it's like, how the heck can he see that? He's like 100 feet away from the titty lamp. How does he know the titty lamp is broken? It was, cra it was crazy times, man. But it was like the whole formation of us as a unit, that was the backdrop of it. And it was the reason we were so tight, not only as musicians, but just as people. Because we already grew up as friends anyway. But that, those experiences just totally solidified everything that we were doing. And then we would play at night. Like, like we would rehearse during the day. And then at night, Weaver would open the place up, charge people. And we'd play songs. Not, you know, when we do a couple covers, but mostly it'd just be our stuff. People didn't know what the heck we were singing. But they just liked it. You know, it was just like a place to go and hang out and stuff. Okay, this is what I gotta know. Now, more than anything, you guys... Um, had this image that was just as important and prevalent as the music was. Um, and how did you guys actually care for, like, did Morris have 10 versions of that gold jacket? Did you have 90, like, 30 fedoras? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the thing is that what I know about touring is every show every I do, yeah. it's drenched. Mm -hmm. Are you, but I know that it's required that you guys, you know, it. do you guys have a wardrobe person that runs shit to the cleaners and stuff? Because I feel like 
And did you have to look that way 24-7? Okay. Well, yeah. So the wardrobe really was based on the way we dressed anyway. Um, you as guys a matter were fact, always looking as a like matter that? Fact, as a matter of fact, you're looking at it, you're looking at it right now, but I'm going to show you a picture of Terry. You can't see this on the air. But this is Terry Lewis at like 14, 15 years old. Wow. Well, a white right. black lapel. All right. But that's his, oh, that's his, no, that's his guitar strap. Wow. Yeah. And, and he's got, and he's got, and he painted this bass red, black, and green. This is the bass. When I met yes, Terry, he, he painted his, his, you know, so he was Afrocentric in the whole the thing. the people got the power. That's right. He's so, been woke. So, that, so, when, <laughs> so, so when people talk about the way we looked, I mean, that, that goes from, you know, back in that day. I mean, we, we, we used to take, because the thrift stores, we couldn't afford to dress. We wanted to dress nice, but we couldn't afford it. But you could go to a thrift store and get a suit for ten bucks, mm-hmm. right? And get a hat and the whole thing. So we were always rocking that style, and Prince just enhanced it. Now Morris's stuff, the press we called it the Presley, the uh, jacket that he had on the first two album covers. Mm-hmm. There was only one. Yeah, there was only one. That was it, the Presley. And yeah, we kept it dry. You know, that was part of Jerome's job, by the way. He was the real valet for the group. <laughs> so he'd call everybody and say. You know, have your dry cleaning ready to go, you know, if we'd be at a hotel or that kind of thing. But, yeah, all of our stuff was thrift shop stuff. And it was interesting because the first tour we did, I remember we would go to thrift shops and we would clean up. Second tour we did, they were all out of stuff because people yes, would go else and, caught on. and yeah. doing it. Yeah, it totally caught on. So it was interesting. But, yeah, no, that, that was the thing, man. We just, that was always kind of our, our, our style anyway. You guys weren't quite of age, but, like... That that look when they came out in 1981, mm-hmm. I mean that's the first time I think like we were all begging our moms like yo take us to the thrift store words you would never I hear. Wondering, I was wondering if that was cool to y'all because that's like <laughs> ill dog. I mean they they talked about baggies and then like mm-hmm. and you know my mom be like Psh, I can baggies yeah i can get you some baggies it's like two dollars at the thrift store and right. you was like the thrift store <laughs> yeah well first i frowned on it but like because my cousins were more like in the street you know like b-boy and just came out and sergio valente's New and Jordan's. Clothes. all the drug dealer shit right mm-hmm. but <laughs> when oh my goodness like all of sixth grade all i wore were just baggies and my parents couldn't be more pleased than to spend, <laughs> spend $30 on like 20 pairs of pants. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so you guys just naturally look like gangsters we just 24-7. Natu- we just naturally, yeah, we just naturally did it and, and, and we just kind of fell into it. And we also liked the whole idea, the whole cool aspect we liked anyway because it was about respecting yourself and it was about, you know, dressing well and having class and that. And we liked the idea of that. I mean, we enhanced it, and Prince enhanced it. I mean, he he took it to a whole nother level. And yes, he wanted us to always look the part. He hated the idea of, um, because we used to talk about it. Back in the day, when we first started touring and stuff, we would go out like with Cameo, you know, and Cameo would have, you know, the glitter suits on and the whole thing. And and Prince always kind of frowned on it. He just said, no, he said, you should look the way you look. You know, and and nobody should see you looking unlike yourself, what they expect to see you. Even to the point where I remember with Morris, I mean, by the second tour, we were holding that Presley together with tape, literally. I mean, it was just like that thing was about ready to fall apart. And I remember Morris kept saying, Prince, can I get a new jacket? I need a new Presley. And Prince was like, no, that's what people expect to see you in. And that's the way you need to look. He was very much into that. Right. 
And I remember about halfway through that tour, and uh, we were kicking his ass pretty good every night <laughs> at that point. Oh, um, we know. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember they, at one point in time, I remember the management came to us and said, um, we're going to put you guys out on your own on your own tour. Because Prince didn't let us play. Uh, you have to now think about, once again, no media, no social media, right? So everything that you got, you read, right? It was a newspaper thing, right? Mm -hmm. The two biggest markets, obviously, were L.A. and New York, right? Those two markets, we didn't play with Prince. We didn't open with him, mm -hmm. right? So he did Madison Square Garden or whatever it was. We didn't play. But we played for Vanity Six. So we were in the building, mm -hmm. right? Which, to, to this day, is the thing that probably pisses Jellybean off the most of anything. Man, all our friends are out there, man. We're in the building and stuff, and we can't even play. I was like, he used to get so mad. Same with the forum in L.A. Never played the form in L.A. We played Long Beach Arena, mm -hmm. and we played, I think, Nassau Coliseum or something in, in New York. But we never got to play those shows because the reviews were all like, yeah, Prince was great. That was great. But you got to see the time, you know, and he didn't want that. So that was the thing. So we never played those markets. So after we saw that happening, we were kind of like, okay. So the management's like, you know, we're going to put you on your own tour. And I think it was going to be Ch Evelyn Champagne King and uh, Shalimar, somebody like that, right? So we were like, okay, cool, great. We'll do our own tour. That, that's cool. So then they changed their mind. and they said, So by this point in time, so Morris said, well, if we're doing our own tour, I'm getting me a new Presley. <laughs> so Morris orders this new Presley, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember we, Prince used to sometimes come in our dressing room because after we do the Vanity Six set, we would, they, at, in the old, at the beginning, they would give us like 15 minutes to change, right? So we would come out and do the Vanity Six set, and then we'd go back in the dress room, hang out for a little bit, and then we'd come back out. Sometimes we'd actually be dressed, but we put on like capes or we put on something stupid so people couldn't see So the people on the we sides couldn't yeah, see. Yeah, so they couldn't see who we were, right? So, but it was great because we were so warmed up. It was like our sound check, right? We played for Vanity Six. So it even made us better, right? And, and then it got to the point where he wouldn't even give us enough time to change or anything. We really started killing him then because we were all warmed up. And, and it was like Jelly Bean, like the longer he played, the better he got. He was one of those kind of drummers. So it was all working against him. So I remember we had kind of latashed him in about three or four gigs in a row. So anyway, he comes into the dressing room and we were really kind of feeling ourselves at that point in time. And he comes into the dressing room and he goes, um, and nobody's really reacting to him. And he just kind of goes... Um, uh, what are you guys doing? And uh, Morris says, got something to show you, Prince. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so J Jerome goes and brings out this uh, wardrobe thing and uh, unzips it. And uh, Morris like flips it and the thing comes off. And he goes, I got a new Presley. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Prince literally goes, ah, I created a monster, and <laughs> ran out of the room. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Swear to God. Swear to God. He did. He created a monster. He did. And it's like, yeah. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, 
What I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life. Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What were those? Okay, so I know by the time that, what time is it came out? You guys were... And maybe assuming a better place, but in the very beginning, the first album, were you guys like, I, I just want to know what a working class musician was into and doing between 81 to 82. Like, were you guys driving yourself to the gigs? Like, I, I don't know if you read uh, Maurice White's autobiography, but I'm shocked that even up until Spirit, mm-hmm. they were like driving themselves to the gigs. They were... You know, station wagons to the gigs and that stuff. Well, we did. We definitely did the station wagon thing. There's no doubt about that. We did, but not by the t- by the time we were actually touring with Prince. No, we had a tour bus, and you know, we were making our little hundred and fifty dollars a week after yeah, what, they what a is, week oh, wow. a week. Yeah. What is yeah? Not what a is gig. a working class been. musician make in '81 on that tour? Like, were you guys at the top level or? No, we were no, we were well below the top level because we we were like I say we would get $150 a week in a in a check and for that it was and mine like per it, diem. Yeah, well, and we get per diem too, so I guess that would add up to 250 a week. So that if that changes anything, I mean my my check after taxes was $117. I still have I think my check stub, you know, my original check stub. But no, we were going broke and it probably, you know, for me at the time I was living at home anyway, so I hadn't moved out and I didn't have any kids. I didn't have any responsibility. It was really tough on Terry um, because Terry not only, Terry drove a school bus, um, you know, and and was making really good money doing that. Um, But also because when we were gigging his flight time and like I say, we were like doing our own gigs and that. Promoting. And and yeah, we, we were doing really well. I mean, as a band, I mean, Terry took a huge pay cut, probably the biggest out of anybody, had a young son at that point, um, and a house. I mean, Terry was always very, like, responsible from, like, an early age. Like, he was already living his, he was like an adult at an early age. So for him, yeah, it it, it, it hit him really bad. Like, it messed his credit up. It You know, it, it messed him oh, up. Oh, crap. 
Oh yeah, it, it totally messed it totally messed him up. And and even I remember the second year, we had an ultimatum. Like it was in, uh, I think it was San Diego. I think we were in San Diego, and uh, we had we were all sharing rooms at that point in time, except for except for Morris. Mm-hmm. And I remember Terry said, "Man, we got two gold albums. They had bumped us up to two fifty a week, and then." Vanity and yeah, Vanity Six was giving us another hundred a week or something like that, at plus per diem. So we everybody was saving their per diem to buy a VCR or whatever. I mean, you know, that was the hot thing back in that day was save up for a VCR, right? But we, but everybody was getting, you know, at that point in time, you're getting on everybody's getting on everybody's nerves. So it was like, you know, Terry said, "Man, we need our own room." So he went to management at the time, and there was this lady named Jamie Shoop, and Jamie Shoop was like, "Shoop the, was your tour manager." She was our tour manager, not Alan. No. Okay. Uh, uh, Alan came along after us. Okay. After when we were there. Yeah. Yeah. So Jamie was amazing. Uh, took great care of us. She, I mean, as best she could. I mean, because it was it was Prince's thing. I mean, there was no doubt about Prince ran it. Right. But she looked out for us the best she can, and she said, "Listen," she said, "If you guys you guys should have your own rooms, I'll advocate for that. Let's have a meeting, whatever." So we told everybody, "Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a meeting in San Diego." And we're basically going to say, if we don't get rooms, we're quitting the tour. That's the thing, right? Now, Jesse, for some reason, we said don't tell anybody. But Jesse, for some reason, went behind our backs and told management or told Prince or told somebody. So when we got everybody in this room, Mm. we thought, you know, we had the upper hand. We're going to spring this on them. We walked into the room and Prince was like, so you guys are going to boycott, huh? We were like going, <laughs> we like all looked at each other, then we all looked at Jesse. And Jesse's like, what? You know, whatever. We're like, okay. <laughs> so Terry at that point was just like, you know, listen, dude. He said, I can't, you know, I can't, I got a, I got a kid. I got, you know, whatever, whatever. I, I can't, you know, I can't do this. And I remember Prince said, he said to Terry, rock stars shouldn't have kids. What? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never forget that. I never forget that to this day. Uh, and uh, anyway, so Terry, so Terry walked up. Famous. Terry said. Words. Terry said. He quit. Terry said. Terry said. I, I remember going into it. He said, "I'm always going to have enough money to get a bus ticket if I can do nothing else. I'm going to have enough money to get a bus ticket to go home." And so he had his, you know, fifty dollars or whatever the heck a bus ticket was. He had it, and he said, "That's it. I'm out of here." Well. Of course, Jamie came to the rescue and talked to Prince and said, Prince, come on. These guys, you know, they can have their own rooms. At what's not? What's the big deal? It's, you know, it's three more rooms a night. What's the big deal? And anyway, Prince was, so Prince was said, okay, fine, they got it. But if it wouldn't have been for Terry doing that, right. because, because for Terry, it was serious. It wasn't like a, you know, a grandstanding type thing or anything. It was like serious. Like Terry real was going, life. Yeah. Terry had real life and real real responsibilities, and, and so he couldn't for, ob- be, for nineteen make for nineteen eighty two. What would have been fair market share for what you know? What tickets were back then? What the gross was for these shows? And I know everyone's on the story, so I know it's vanity and yeah. their people and you guys and your people and the revolution and Prince and his people, I'm sure the staff and mm-hmm. all that stuff. What What is fair for that time period? Honestly, Quest, I don't know. I, I don't really know. It, it wasn't that because, you know, 
we were and tour support wasn't a thing like Mo Austin and those guys weren't like I think Warner Brothers, yeah, I think Warner Brothers definitely supported the tour. I mean, because all three records were all Warner Brothers records. I mean, you couldn't actually have a better situation. I mean, really, yeah. Right? You know, they were all records. But the other thing was, we weren't making any, we never made any royalties on the time records. All we made was the salary. So it wasn't like it was an advance against royalties. And remember back in those days, um, if you had a gold record, you were doing pretty well. Because, you know, the money flowed. I mean, the, the royalties were... were were pretty good. So when so, they would open a budget, that wasn't split with you guys. Like it was just like we you never, just paid regular salary. We were just re- played a regular salary. We never, we never were art were royalty artists individually. Morris was, but the rest of us weren't. Was there a big difference between you guys and the Revolution when it came to that? Like mon- financially, I I never knew what the Revolution made. Quite honestly, I never did. We never we never really dealt with it. Um, I'm sure they were making more than us. You know, um, but. So, so at what point does uh, the idea of moonlighting even come into your, you know, your brain? Like, And is well, moonlighting a thing like, we need to make our own money and get our own publishing? Or just like, no. hey, we want to express ourselves? Yes. It? Yeah. No, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a money thing um, ever. It was, um, so, so the way that went down was um, Terry, once again, Terry. Um, and if I don't say it enough during this interview, thank God for Terry Lewis. <laughs> I mean, I swear to God, that brother in my life has just been a godsend, uh, in, in every possible way. And, uh, but Terry said, um, I can't remember where we were at. I want to, I, I, first I was thinking it was Houston, but it wasn't Houston, but it was somewhere. And we were kind of ending up, the tour was kind of beginning to end up and, and we were, and Terry said, I'm going to go to L.A. after the tour. And everybody was like, well, what you going to do in L.A., T? And he, and he said, man, he said, I'm just going to make some demos and um, try to get some songs placed and just do some stuff. And everybody was like, why? And he said, because they need us out there. And everybody said, man, you're crazy. And so Terry said, well, who, who wants to go? Somebody want to come with me? And everybody's like, man, no, man, I'm saving up for my VCR, man. I'm, you know. <laughs> and literally, that's what everybody said. And I looked at Terry and I said, well, I'll go. Terry said, okay. And I said, but where are we going to stay? He said, I don't know. We'll figure it out. I said, where are we going to get equipment from? I don't know. We're going to figure it out. I said, where are we going to get a car from? I don't know. We'll figure it out. And I trusted that brother because that was the brother that when the girl broke up with me, and when I was a drummer and he told me I needed to be a keyboard player, uh, got me into the band. And I just trust him because he because he had made decisions before and twisted my arm to do things. And I'm like, I'm not going to he doesn't need to twist my arm on this one. I'm going to go on faith on this one. And um, so when the tour ended, we went to L.A. Uh, Terry um, sold his car, I think, if I'm not mistaken. We yes. bought. uh Word up, Terry. He on some Viking shit. Yeah, I right. <laughs> Burn the ships, goddammit. We ain't coming back. I'm with it. We bought a, uh, we bought a, you know, in the classifieds, we bought a, a Tascam, a little four-track tape, a little microphone. I had this little Casio keyboard with a little drum machine built into it. He had his bass. 
And there were some people we knew from Minneapolis that had a house. They, had, uh, they were renting a house out there, and they had one bedroom in the house. And it was smaller probably than this little area. We're sitting there. We had enough room to put two cots in there. Right. And that's where me and Terry bunked. We didn't have a car, so we would walk to... Uh, there in was a, California? Yeah. But, but, <laughs> right. but we, but, but we, in the 80s. In the 80s. <laughs> well, the, here's the funny thing, though. We, the, the only places we went, because we'd do our demos at home, right? So we'd do our demos at the crib. So we'd sit at the, the, the crib all day. They'd go to work, the people who we were staying with. And we'd all day be in like the bathroom and stuff to get reverb and stuff and be making our little demos and stuff. And then we would walk. There was a place called Golden Bird Chicken that was on La Cienega Avenue. Best chicken ever to me. And you could get a four piece for two ninety nine. Because we didn't have any money. So we'd go get the two piece the four piece rather for two ninety nine. That was our me- one meal of the day. And then when our the people got home at night, they'd all make milkshakes or whatever. And so we'd have a milkshake at night. And that was that was basically <laughs> the way we lived. And it was funny because oh, and we didn't have any clothes. We had our time clothes. So like we're in ninety degree weather, but we got these and big ass suits. suits. <laughs> And the police used to the police used to stop us, right? We'd just be walking. And the police would stop us and they go, uh, everything okay, gentlemen? And we'd go like, Yeah, everything's good. And they'd look at us and they go, You're not from here, are you? And we'd be like, No, how could you tell? <laughs> you know. And uh but they never messed with us really. Um and, and it was cool and, and that was kind of our thing. And then eventually, you know, we hooked up with some girls that had cars, you know. Right. I, I found a girl that had a Porsche. It was cool. <laughs> you know, I mean, so, so we figured it out. But but that was what we were doing. And of course, the word back in Minneapolis is that we were out there starving to death and, you know, we're starving to death and they're nuts and they're crazy. And, you know, that was kind of the thought process. Well, how much downtime did you have? Because I figured at least until the time that you guys were dismissed that there was no downtime. Like you're always rehearsing. We had we had okay, so that was between so the first tour was eighty one into eighty two. We I think we were done in April of eighty two. Okay. So we had between April and probably June or July before we started rehearsing for the next tour and stuff. So and we had like two or three months. Situation where he's like, "Where are you guys?" I'm doing oh, your it, version of Prince. Oh, it's a, oh yeah, no, that was good. That was a good one. <laughs> no, it, def- it definitely it definitely turned into that. Were you guys given a general rule that you weren't allowed to moonlight? Yes, it wasn't a general rule. It was a mandate, basically. Did Morris enforce these rules, or was it just like Prince said? Did Morris? No, this care? was Prince. No, this was Prince. This had this was not Morris. As a matter of fact, um, I I really Morris said something at rehearsal one day that was so. Um, for for us, very empowering and very enlightening. I don't know how everybody else took it, but he said that um, this thing ain't going to last forever. Whoa. And he said that um, I suggest everybody figure out what it is that they want to do out of this and start working towards it. He said, I don't know what everybody else is doing. He said, now, he said, I'm taking acting lessons because he said, I want to learn to actually, you know, do I want to be I want to be able to act I want to be able to do stuff you know um, was this before Purple Rain this started? is before Purple Rain this is wow. yeah this is this is going into the uh, into the 1999 tour okay cool. so um, and uh, he so he said that and then he said uh, he said you know he pointed at me and Terry and he said Jimmy and Terry are producing records he said um, I don't know what the rest of y'all are doing but y'all need to figure it out so he knew. He knew, he, or he, you know, he knew what it was going to be. 
So that was very encouraging to us. And what Terry and I used to do, I mean, we spent a lot of money doing it, but um, and I have no idea where we got the money from, quite honestly, now that I think about it. But Prince used to, we would rehearse during the week. And we would, re, we would rehearse, you know, Monday through Friday or whatever. When we would get done Friday, Terry and I would hop like the last flight to L.A. And, you know, we had booked a couple of, you know, acts at that point in time. We were doing a group called Real to Real for Leon Silvers. Um, we were doing... Um, climax for uh, dick griffey at solar um so we had a couple things going right so we would fly and we do you know 24-hour lockout at the studio right which we didn't know so we do 24-hour lockout but then we would work 24 hours we didn't know that it just meant that nobody could come in the studio after you right <laughs> so we drive the engineer crazy <laughs> right right and he'd, he'd be like what time do you think we're gonna end tonight we said, we got 24-hour lockout. What you talking about? We go. <laughs> he was like, no, but that doesn't mean you were. I said, no, we got it for 24 hours. We're working 24 hours. Terry would be asleep on the couch. I'd be working. Then I'd fall asleep, and Terry would be working. One we engineer. Working. Oh, man, no. We were, I mean, it's like, come on, man. We're trying to get this done. So that was the way we would work. And then we would catch a plane back to be back in time for Monday rehearsal. So Prince got wind of what we were doing. Who snitched? Jesse. 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 <laughs> I knew it. Jesse. Jesse the turncoat. <laughs> and uh, so all of a sudden, the rehearsals would start going longer and longer. Then all of a sudden, there'd be a Saturday rehearsal. Or there would be, are we are we rehearsing tonight? No, there's no rehearsal tonight. Okay, cool. We're going to hop a plane. Oh, and then we're literally on our way to the airport. Oh, yeah, there's a rehearsal. Uh, you know, that kind of thing would start happening. So it was a lot of roadblocks, you know, kind of thrown in front of us at that point. And, um, yeah, a lot of that. <laughs> so it was it was an interesting time. But no, we were doing it. We certainly weren't doing it for the money because we weren't making any money. But we were doing it just because we had a love of music. And, and we didn't feel what we were doing sounded like the time. Because one of Prince's concerns was... That, you know, don't give away the time sound. And it's like, well, but you, you are, are the, the time, time sound. Right. <laughs> so what we're doing isn't the time. I mean, right. you know, and so there was a lot of that. I remember we, we got blamed for um, Leon did Keep this record. Keep on loving me. Keep on loving me. <laughs> Prince swore we did that record. We said, Prince, we weren't even in the studio when that record was done. We weren't he even still swears. That we did that record, right? In 97, he told me a story. Like, you know, they're hiding behind Leon Silvers, but. I know it was them. Like, he still believes that that's them. We didn't. Actually, matter of fact, it's funny. We heard that record. I think the first time we heard that record was on the radio. Mm -hmm. And we loved it. I mean, we were, because yeah. I mean, we were Leon, I mean, Leon Silver's disciples, man. We, I love Leon Silver's, man. And we heard that record and we were like, oh, hell yeah. We love this. This is great. And we're like, we never heard it before. We weren't in the studio. <laughs> I mean, he took. How did they approach you? Like, Listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because we did, when we did, we did a record called Can You Treat Me Like She Does for Real to Real mm -hmm. and a very obscure record. But the demo of that song, Terry's playing the bass very much like the time. And uh, Leon always called it the patent bass, like when you're patting something mm -hmm. because it's really, it's more of a percussive thing than actually playing notes. Right. So it's just boom. It's the, right. you know, Terry calls it boogaloo bass. Okay. Right. So uh, Leon always called it uh, the patent, patent bass, like you're patting the bass, right? So um, when we did the demo of the record and Leon heard it, he says, oh, he said, because he always scratched his beard. 
and he always talked like this and he'd say yeah he said i like that i like that record he said we're gonna do that record on my group real to real and we we're like okay great leon cool you know so we went in and did the track so as we're doing the track prince is in our mind talking about don't give away the time sound so now <laughs> so terry like is watering down the bass part now right so now terry <laughs> terry's just going boom <laughs> you know he's just kind of doing like that so we turned you know we did the track and we said okay here you go leon and he goes what happened to the patent bass mm-hmm. <laughs> and we were like no that's the way we do it just just like that no i heard the shits on the demo and he was patting the bass different than he's doing it so either you guys can do the patent on the bass or i'll go in and do it myself <laughs> and so we were like oh shit okay so we went in and i think i think leon I, terry did kind of add a little bit to it but never wanted to give the whole thing away but I think Leon did go in and, you know, put a few little pats of his own in there. But no, I mean, we really were conscious of that, of, of not, we didn't want to give away the time sound. And I think, and, and, and by the way, when we were producers, that was the same thing we did when we started producing. We, we would do one act and then the next act we'd be like, no, we're going to a whole different groove or drum machines or keyboards or whatever to try to keep everybody, you know, their own thing. How did you avoid the Dick Griffey pitfall? Because yeah. you guys could have easily yeah. been just solar house producers. Yep. Did he pursue you guys at all? Sort of. Okay. Um, the well, the reason is one man, Clarence Avon. Okay. Clarence Avon didn't allow that to happen. Now, when we went to see Clarence, um, there was a lady named Dina Andrews who was uh, an A and R person at Solar Records, and she, pardon me, she was the one that actually introduced us to Dick Griffey. Mm-hmm. And she also knew, um, and, and, and by the way, all of these songs we were doing back then were all based on one demo tape that we did at the house. And and High Hopes was on their SOS band, a song called uh, When You're Far Away that we ended up doing on Gladys Nine the Pips, a song called The Only One that we did on Dynasty, which was Leon's yeah, group. Was, Y'all yeah. did that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Matter of fact, the keyboard on there is that original little Casio keyboard, because <laughs> Leon said, man, keep that keyboard sound just like you had it. I said, okay. Damn. So like literally, uh, climax we did for Dick Griffey, reel to reel we did Dick, if not for I mean for yeah, Leon Silvers, yeah exactly, uh, and and so on and so forth. So anyway, but all of these songs were all on that same demo tape, and everybody just heard different songs they liked. Oh, Dick wow. Dick heard you know Wild Girls. How about said, saying yeah, Wild Girls was that yeah, one of them? Yeah, he oh, heard man. Wild Girls and said oh yeah Wild Girls that Wild Girls we like that you know. You still but, have a copy of so, that demo tape? Um, you know Terry probably does. He probably does. I don't, I don't have it, but I bet you he does. Because he's still got the four track, you know, that wow. we did all that stuff. Probably in this room somewhere. Yeah. He's got, no, it's not here. It's not, he's got it at his house, but it's not here. But he's got it, definitely. But anyway, so that was, the, that was the whole thing. So everybody had their own different kind of things that they liked. But what happened with Clarence was, um, Dina said, I'm going to introduce you to, to Clarence Avant because Clarence had wanted us to do, he, we had done High Hopes, but we didn't produce it. We just wrote it, right? So Clarence wanted to hear what it would have sounded like if we produced it. So we had the demo. So we, you know, Dina set up a meeting. We went to meet him. Clarence called us the two thugs because we walked in with, you know, our hats and our suits and stuff. Right. And he said, who, who are you two thugs, you know? <laughs> so anyway, he listens to the, he said, he said, that high hopes. He said, I like that record. He says, you know, and, and we said, well, Clarence, he said, it, we, it's cool but the way it came out, but, you know, 
He said, what's the difference in the demo? I said, we'll put the chili sauce on the demo. He said, oh, you did? <laughs> chili sauce. Oh, I like that. Okay, let's hear that. And so we put it in, and he, he said, yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. He says, okay. So I want you to do two, mo two songs on the next SOS band record. Mm. And we said, okay, cool. Yeah, we're down. You know, whatever. So he said, okay. He said, but here's the thing. He said, now, y'all's manager was negotiating your <laughs> fee. And when he said that, our first thought was, oh, man. So we were like, okay, Clarence, well, we can, you know, we can get the budget down, man, you know, whatever you, you know, want to do. And he said, get the budget down. She ain't asking enough money. Y'all, y'all are worth more than that. And we were like, oh, Who really? was representing you at the time? Dina Andrews. Okay, okay. Yeah, she was like our kind of de facto But she manager. also worked for Solar. Though. But she worked for Solar. But yeah. yeah, but she was moonlighting, I guess you could say, yeah. you know, representing our affairs. And, uh. She had also got uh, introduced us to a guy at uh, Warner Brothers Publishing, and I'm trying to think of who it was, or Warner Chapel, I can't remember his name, who was going to give us a publishing deal, right? Mm -hmm. So Clarence had seen the publishing deal, and Clarence said, if y'all sign this publishing deal, I'm never speaking to you two again. Damn. And we were like, wow, what's, what's the problem with the, with the deal, Clarence? And the deal was something like, it was like, I don't know, 100 and... I don't know, it's $170,000 for three years or something like that, right? Which at the time you thought, hey. Oh, my God. I'm like, are you kidding me? We're, we're taking <laughs> yeah, a bus. That's $150 a week? Yeah, right. <laughs> we're like, oh, come on, man. That's great. He says, he said, well, let me just break it down for you gentlemen. So <laughs> he said, so you got $170,000. So first of all, you know, you're going to split that in half because there's two of y'all. In case you didn't understand that, there's two of you. Okay. So now maybe you have, you know, $85,000. Now, Uncle Sam's going to take his 50%, and now you got $40,000, and three years for $40,000, that's $15,000 a year. What are you going to do with that? And we're like, uh, well, hmm. He said, gentlemen, he said, I guarantee you, your first royalty check will be more than that total three-year check. Mark my words. And we said, okay, Clarence, we're cool. We're with it. So we never we never signed a deal. Clarence gave us the SOS band deal. And, of course, that led to the ill-fated recording session in Atlanta. In Atlanta. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that we all know about. So, But that was the thing. And, and by the way, Clarence was absolutely right. Our first royalty check was uh, probably right around that number. Just for, I think, just for the first, like, SOS thing. So For one song. Yeah. What was it? Was it just be good just to me? Just be good to me. Yeah. yeah. So, so he was right. So that's how we didn't get into the Dick Griffey thing because he didn't allow that to happen. He said, and the other, the last little thing, he told us when we met with him, he said, think about this, gentlemen, what are you going to be doing seven years from now? And we said, we're going to be making hits. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, I don't mean that. He said, right now you got me, you got Barry Gordy, you got Lonnie Simmons, you got uh, Dick Griffey. Right, you know, we're we're the guys that are in the industry. Who's gonna be the next us? Mm. So that's who you need to. That's what you need to start looking at. You need to start identifying talent and then helping them out. And he says, if you ever come across somebody who you think is talented, and they're in a screwed up deal or whatever it is, you introduce them to me. And we said okay. And you know who we met? L. A. L. A. Reed. Wow. L. A. Reed. He was in the deal. Yep, because he was in the deal, and he was, and they had that and he's Dick the Griffey one that signed the contract because yep. nobody else did. They had that con. They had that contract, and we met him, 
and knew him and Face were doing stuff together. And he said, can you introduce me to Clarence? And we said, absolutely. We called Clarence. We said, Clarence, we got somebody for you, just like you said. And the rest is history there. So Clarence Clarence is, is the funk whisperer. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he is. He absolutely is. He absolutely is. Wow. I re well, yeah, the first time I... I mean, I love Sussex Records, but I didn't know that he was the... He was taboo. Yeah. Yeah. The head of it, or even taboo. Yep. Um, but yeah, I remember he was one of the first people you thanked when you got your Grammy, your uh, producer of the year. Yes. Yeah. For your Grammy. Yeah. So, how? Okay, I'm I'm playing willfully ignorant here. The day that you got fired, I mean, was that mid tour or did you? That was between tours. <clears throat> so. Okay. So what had happened was, of course, obviously this, the, the whole snowstorm happened. We missed the gig in San Antonio. We went to Were San... Were you sitting on the plane as... No, the plane, they weren't letting people on the plane. There was literally... Now, I'm from Minnesota. What time was the flight? Flight was, like, first thing in the morning, like, 7 o'clock in the morning. Like, just so when even the, then, y'all didn't think, like, maybe we rent a car, we can... We did think of that. We thought of every possible scenario. We booked ourselves on any flight leaving. We booked ourselves on it. You could do that in those days. Right. And literally, we were booked on like 10 different flights. And they all canceled. And they all canceled, <laughs> literally. Then we thought, well, can we get the rent-a-car back, drive to an airport that's open? But once again now, you're not dealing with, it's not Waze and, uh, and, and you know, and, 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 and Siri, and what's the closest airport that's open, Siri. And mm -hmm. it's none of that. You know, you had none of those, uh, you know, the ability to do that. So... Um, but no, all of those possibilities, we were like, oh, take a flight to anywhere we can connect and get to San Antonio. So we had the whole day to figure it out. And so literally for eight hours, and of course we're in the Atlanta airport, anybody been to the Atlanta airport? Mm -hmm. It was yeah. one of the first airports with totally separate terminals mm -hmm. for everything where you had to take the train to get to each terminal. Mm -hmm. We were up and down on the train, up and down, I'd like, what's taking off? Anybody taking off? Anybody taking It was, it was... Uh, probably the worst day of my life, I would say, because we had never missed a gig. I mean, you just, as a musician, the show must go on. I mean, I remember Terry, there was a gig we had. Terry had stitches and stuff and was bleeding and got in a car accident, but still showed up and did the gig. You know, we actually, we were opening for, uh, maybe it was, a, it might have been the cameo we were opening for or something. And But he showed up. I mean, he was like, where's Terry? Oh, he's at the hospital, but he's on his way. It's like, okay, cool. You know, it's like, you just don't miss a gig, man. So... That was crazy. But we figured out we were going to miss it. When we got into town, it was really funny because I actually went to the club afterwards and everybody was saying, oh, man, y'all were great. Y'all were great. <laughs> I felt so weird. I was like, I'm going home, man. This is this is too weird. So when we got to back to L.A., we just figured, you know, because we were still making our little check, our little paycheck, right? Mm -hmm. So we got, you know, we would go by the accountant's office and I figured we we're going to go get our last check, right? So we walked into the accountant's office and everybody was like, hey, how you guys doing? Oh, here's your checks. Okay, we'll see you next week. And we were like, you will? Okay, cool. All right. So we took our check, right? So we did that for the next couple weeks, three weeks, you know, just went in and got our check and whatever. And I'm like going, I don't think they know we're fired. That's weird, you know. So then we were at this uh, Whispers concert. Did you know you were fired, though? We, we were told we were fired. Okay. Yeah, we were told we were fired. Matter of fact, who told you you Prince. were Prince. Prince told us. So and he is confrontational. It wasn't like, get my management to tell you Cavallo oh, no. and those gets. Wasn't oh, this no, done no. over at a dinner, too, or something, where like Prince and Morris were sitting together? It wasn't It wasn't a dinner. It was What, what happened was, um, and this is so damn movie storybook time, okay? 
we had, you know, were ready to mix the SOS band songs. And we had ended up doing uh, Just Be Good to Me, but also did Tell Me If You Still Care also um, in a subsequent session. So we're like ready to go. We're like got the time booked at uh, Larrabee Studios, right? And we're going to mix with Steve Hodge. Wow. The way we know Steve Hodge is from looking at the liner notes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like, okay, we need Steve Hodge at Larrabee. That's the, the combination that we need, right, right, to mix the record. That's all We didn't know, but that's what we figured. So we got the time booked. That day, we get a call from Prince. Meet me at Sunset Sound at 6.30. And we were like, damn. So we kind of looked at each other and we said, well, we're supposed to be mixing the SOS band record. Well, we got to go. We got to go to sunset sound i mean it's like it was obvious to, it, it was no choice it was like no the time is our priority mm -hmm. you know the sos thing we can wait and we'll figure it out so we went when we pulled up the accountant was there a guy named fred moultrie he was there and we said uh we're getting our we're getting fired like we knew the jig was up right <laughs> you instantly knew we just knew we just knew that what it was so we said hey what's up fred and Fred had this high voice, and he said, hey, guys, how you doing? Have a good session. Y'all have a good session. And we were like, oh, okay, cool. All right, well, maybe not, you know. So we go into this little room, kind of this little sitting room right adjacent to the studio. And myself, Terry, Jesse, Morris, and Prince. Just the five of us, right? And Prince goes, I told you guys not to produce other records. And... You did. So, you're fired. And room went silent for a minute. And then I got up and I said, okay, cool. And I got up and walked out the door. So, Terry stayed in there for a little while trying to reason with him. Like, really? Come, yeah. Terry uh. was like, come on, man. Well, Terry, you know, Terry was great because here's the one thing. T first of all, t t Prince couldn't bullshit Terry. Ever. You just, he's just, you, you, he's just not the can't you do it with. And that's what Prince liked about Terry so much. He knew he couldn't do, you know, okie doke on him. Like, like he would just tell him straight, like Prince, you suck right now. Or you, you know, he would just he always say that. Yeah, he could. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. They used to get in, they used to get in these five, six hour conversations about stuff, about, really? about life and religion and you name it. And and because Prince would have all these philosophies and he'd do all this stuff and it and it'd be like and he'd talk and and you when he talked man he had this way of kind of like it was like drinking the Kool Aid man it was like right no one ever challenged him on it nobody challenged him and Terry would always go like yeah okay well that's what you think but here's what I think and and would come right back at him and I think Prince always appreciated that with Terry and Terry was really the leader of the time I mean Morris was the lead singer but whenever there was a decision to be made. Morris would always go, Terry, what do you think? Okay. Right? So Terry was that dude. So Terry, yeah, so Terry tried to reason with him a little bit and just kind of go like, come on, man, you, why, would you, why would you do that? We're not giving away the sound like you say we're doing, you know, so-and-so, you know, whatever. Anyway, about 10 minutes later, Terry comes out. And he says, okay, well, what do you want to do now? We looked at our watch. I said, "Well, we got time at yeah, we got time at Larrabee. Let's go to Larrabee and mix this song, right?" So we walk into Larrabee, and uh, we had never even met Steve Hodge before. And so we walk in, and he goes, "You guys, Jimmy and Terry, yeah." He says, "I'm Steve." And I said, "Hey, Steve, nice to meet you. How you doing?" He goes, "Oh, good." And Steve goes, "What's wrong with you guys?" And we said, "Something wrong." And we said, "Oh, we just got fired from the time." And he said, "Steve said, hmm." He said, well, 
I'm going to tell you something. He said, you don't have much to worry about because this record you guys got here, he said, this is a hit. And he knew. <laughs> he knew. He knew. And it, and, and it was. That should be the end of the story, but it wasn't. Oh. Okay. So, because that was how that happened. Of course, now I'm telling you, we, we're still picking up our little paychecks, right, every week, right? Right. So now we're backstage at a Whispers concert. We run into Lee Bailey, who's got this show called Radio Scoop. Radio Scoop. So Lee Bailey's backstage, and he walks up to me with a microphone, and he says, Lee Bailey, Radio Scope. Here you're fired from the time. What's the bottom line? And he puts the mic in my face. And we're <laughs> the going, original TMZ. Yeah, right? And, right, and, we're, and I'm going, who, who are you, man? Lee Bailey, Radio Scope. I said, I, I said, I don't know. I said, we're just here watching the concert, man. But I heard you got fired from the time. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. We're just we're here watching the concert, right? So I just kept saying that, right? A couple of days later, we go to the accountant's office, <laughs> and we go, hey, guys, and they go, uh, we can't give you your checks, guys. We said, why not? They said, because you guys got fired. And we laughed, and we said, we got fired like four or five weeks ago. <laughs> said, Who told you we got fired? It was just on the radio. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Big up to Lee Bailey. He's still doing it. E U R way. Yeah, I talked to Lee Bailey. He's still doing it. Yeah. So, so, so then the the epilogue, as as we call it, back from the Dan August days. Anybody, Dan August fan? I'm over everybody's head. A Quinn Martin production. Anybody ever watch Quinn Martin production shows? No. Okay, well I got some stuff. Yeah, he stumped like, you guys. Yeah, I, I stumped. Oh, I I can't believe it. I can't believe nobody in the room. Okay, so Quinn Martin is a is a production uh, team uh, did TV shows back in the day. But Burt Reynolds was on a show called Dan August. He was a uh, detective. It was really good. G great show. Anyway, they would always say, it would always say act one, act two, act three. And then at the end, it would always say epilogue. And okay. it was always the wrap-up right. of the show. So the epilogue of the story is Prince uh, had Jellybean call uh, Terry. And as it turned out, the reason that the accountant didn't know we were fired is because we never were really fired. Mm. It was a bluff. And the idea was we were supposed to fall flat on our faces and then <laughs> beg for our jobs back, right? <laughs> well, unfortunately, that didn't happen because Just Be Good to Me came out. Unfortunately for who? And uh, oh yeah, well, <laughs> Not for us. So anyway, just be good to me. Everybody basically felt like, okay, well, this is a, this is a smash. Whoever did this, we're good, you know. Um, so Jellybean, so uh, Prince decided divide and conquer. So he called Jellybean, and he said to Jellybean, "Get get Terry Lewis back." And Terry said, and uh, Bean said, "What about what about Jimmy?" And he said, "No." He said, "Just just Terry." So Jellybean, <laughs> Jellybean called Terry. And I never forget this. We're in this. We're in this little little room. At, 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 we had a little three bedroom apartment uh, with Dina with Dina Andrews, I think, as a matter of fact, at that point. And um, I remember Terry getting on the phone and going, "Hey, Bean, what's up? What are y'all doing?" And so Bean's telling him, "Oh yeah, we're going to do this movie, Purple Rain, and we're going to do this whole thing, and you know, blah 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 blah." And uh, Terry says, "Yeah." He says, "Well," he said, "What about Jimmy?" And he said, you don't want Jimmy back. And Terry said, you, every cuss word, every, like, if he could uh, climb through the phone and wrung Bean's neck. <laughs> and I was like, 
what's going, Terry, what's going on? He says, no, no, you can't. Blah. I mean, he was so pissed off. Anyway, I said to Terry, I said, man, go do the movie. It's no big deal. I said, I'm not going anywhere. I said, you know, make the movie sounds fun. Go ahead and do it and whatever. He said, no, hell no. He said, no, we're in this together. He said, if they, they're not going to do that to us. You know, we're, we're, we're a team and, you know, he whatever, whatever. It. Yeah. So that was it. So that was it. So then, and that's, so that's why we were out. And then. Wait, wait, why are you looking at me like Why did you look at me, Amir? Because I felt you looking at me like you could learn from this, Amir. I mean, there are some words of wisdom coming from this story about loyalty. Like, and yeah, you're back. here with you're me right. now. I know. I'm pre- I just, we don't each other for 20 years. You're, right. you're here with me now. Sorry, I had a flashback. I mean, it took a long time, Mr. Jan. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel, wow. as you tell me this Sounds pooping like story. Sounds like another episode of uh, <laughs> ULS. <laughs> Tune in. I'm t- <laughs> <laughs> she looked she gave me that you listen to this Amir <laughs> you're with me okay it's on tape now I just needed it thank you uh-huh. right I love it I love it <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry bringing folks Rude together yes, that's, that's, that's what we do here that's what we do here it's a public service yes oh <laughs> uh, man that's it for part one of our conversation with Jimmy Jam uh, thank you guys for tuning in and next week we have part two and that's when uh, Alexander returns Jimmy and Terry help Janet take control, and much more. Don't miss it. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.